0: Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses. And if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Today's episode will be the last of this season, Season 2. Feels like a good time to take a bit of a break over the winter, the solstice time, the New Year time. And to begin, I think sometime in January, with Season 3. which just shaping up to be a different kind of season. But more about that at the end of this episode. Today I get into some musings about anthropomorphization. That is making animals non-human creatures like ourselves in our artwork in our storytelling so this is often considered to be a bad thing to do this kind of projecting onto other creatures and yet anthropomorphization as we call it is actually fundamental to storytelling it's fundamental to understanding and relating with beings other than human and i'll introduce a thought tool that may be very useful in your story making utility belt which is the spectrum of anthropomorphization degrees of anthropomorphization from one end to the other from very human-like to very animal-like on with the episode So I'm sitting here and I'm looking at my friend who is a big, fuzzy, white cat, like a big white fuzzball with a round face. And this cat, we would call this cat an animal. And I would call myself a human. This is, in English, how we often speak, is that uh, our species, we call ourselves humans. And every other species we call animals. And of course, within the realm of animals, we do have some specific names like cats, which is, you know, a big category. It covers tigers and lions as well as house cats and so on. And there's fish. And of course, there's many different kinds of fish and so on. and. If you think about the explanation of evolution, the scientific explanation of evolution, then we share a great family tree with all these different creatures. So we have branches going back in time that connect us, where we parted from common ancestors, and some beings we are closer to such as primates, and mammals in general, and somewhere a bit further from, like fish, crustaceans, plants. Somewhere closer to, than we might think, (laughs) like fungus. But we have these branches of connections, our close connections, and then we connect to bigger branches and bigger branches, and there's more and more thick connections as we go back in time where we share our DNA, our genetic coding, our ancestors with each other and go back to presumably an original life form or handful of original life forms, whatever that may be. So this is, you know, my understanding in a nutshell, scientific explanation. You got a lot of other explanations in the world as well. Uh, theistic explanations, going back to God. I am God. You know, God, let's say we go from us, we go back in time to the original humans, often a man and a woman. It's quiet in here. It is, oh my God. And they may have come from devas, demigods, And the demigods came from higher demigods who came from aspects of God, who came from originally Godhead or God and Goddess. That's a theistic explanation of how many came from one. So different explanations are there. Many explanations do bring us back to a single source or to a single trunk of a tree Which brings us back to anthropomorphization. Boy, didn't, quite, didn't quite say it as good that time, I think. Let me try that again. Brings us back to anthropomorphization. Anthro, that's us, that's humans. And then the morph, that's form. Ization, to make. So it's to make other beings into human form or to project human qualities onto other beings, such as this fuzzy cat sitting in the room with me, peacefully listening to all this cosmological discussion. So I thank my friend the fuzzy cat for that, and you, dear listener, as well. So given that we have this common history, This common ancestry, you know, if we're living into these stories or one of these stories. That teach us about our past shared roots, trunk roots, source. Given that this is the case, we probably have quite a bit in common with cats and fish and plants and mushrooms. There's probably... A lot in us that's kind of like in them, you know, just like we humans, we're different beings from each other, but we have a lot of the same equipment physically, pretty similar to each other, you know, it's got nipples and genitals and a butt and a digestive tract, mouth to eat, <laughs> eyes to see, ears to hear and so on. And so do animals. And some have better hearing than us, some not as good, some better smell than us. Better meaning, you know, more acute, wider ranging. And they have feelings. I mean, let's, let's just be honest about it, you know? You ever petted a dog, been angry at a dog, whacked a dog? Then, you know, dogs have feelings. They react, they have emotions. I mean, geez, it's pretty self-evident, right? Don't need a bunch of scientific studies. To uh, prove that, I heard Sophie Strand say recently that, half-jokingly, she said that, uh, you know, this whole hang-up around anthropomorphizing other beings might be kind of a smokescreen justification so that, in the name of science and objectivity and such, people can go on using animals for lab experiments and have their conscience be supposedly clear because, after all, animals aren't like us. Aren't humans animals too? So kind of stands to reason, as far as I see, that animals are quite a lot like us. And, of course, we're going to see different creatures from our perspective, just like we see different humans from our perspective. You know, I don't see you like I am you. I see you from my perspective. And if we get into deep empathy with each other, then I can get a sense of what it's like to be you. You can get a sense of what it's like to be me. That's not so different. Not so different with animals, get a sense of what that animal's feeling, can tune into that animal, totally. It's not that big a gulf between us. We're not really that different. I would say we have a lot of layers of complexity that animals don't necessarily have. You know, the human world is freaking complicated, in case you hadn't noticed. So, you know, animals can also experience trauma and grief and you know it's not all easy to be an animal but perhaps they don't have all these same layers of complexity due to parts of our brains that they don't have you know and those parts of our brains they give us access to a lot of opportunities but also a lot of problems a lot of complexity brains. <laughs> So I think that's kind of why we like hanging out with animals, is a certain kind of simplicity. Like the dog, you know, he's just glad to see me. Whatever I'm feeling. If I'm guilty about something, if I'm screwed up, the dog's still glad to see me. People, more complicated. More complicated. And if I meet somebody in the park and I'm walking a dog, we often bond on the basis of that dog, you know? We find common ground in that dog Because we maybe don't know how to find that kind of Simpler animal Common ground with each other Come up to each other in the park Smell each other <laughs> That's actually not that weird I mean that that's considered weird I, That would be considered weird If I went to the park here in Canada And started smelling a stranger But uh, it's not really that weird It's not that different from looking at somebody I don't know. I mean, I heard of cultures where they embrace each other and smell each other. You get a sense of how the person's feeling that day. You can tune in to where they're at. The spectrum of anthropomorphization. So, in terms of... Uh, art and storytelling, talk about anthropomorphization. What is that? What are some examples of that? So I see it as a spectrum. (laughs) Through my presentation of my story, through my artwork, I make a creature, an animal, You know, let's say a dog. I make that dog more like a human. You know? So like cartoons do it all the time. You got a dog that's talking in English. So that's, you know, something dogs don't usually do. Just bust it out and talk in English. A purpose is direction to your life. Or you have a dog walking on hind legs. Might have... The dog head, talking, singing, all the rest. And just make a human body. Just the whole human body is just, you know, the whole body is just human. Except for maybe a little hairier than usual. Or you can have the body's human, but the legs are kind of paws. Like the feet are kind of paws. You know, the hands are, you know, they're kind of like human hands, but they're kind of like paws. And the behavior of the dog, we could have it be that the dog is, you know, basically just a human Works in London, in the financial district, (laughs) you know, goes back and forth at work every day Has a watch on, always looking at the time, very concerned about, you know, stock market It's basically like not a dog, (laughs) it's a human with a dog head, right? And maybe paws or whatever So the behavior isn't anything like a dog that's kind of one end of the spectrum. You know, there's some remnants of what the animal is like. but It's basically just a human. There's not a lot of uh, weaving, really, together. I mean, you could have a crab working in the stock market, and the crab, you know, doesn't go home to get in the bath, soak in the water, doesn't go to the ocean, nothing like that. Kind of boring, right? And you see this sometimes in uh, cartoons and such. It's like it's basically a person that looks like a duck or a rabbit or whatever. But when you start to bring in some elements of the actual animal, it becomes more interesting. Like this Bugs Bunny at least eats carrots, right? (laughs) Like I mean, you know, rabbits like carrots. They like a lot of other things as well. So there's something there. You know Tweety Bird is can fly, so that, you know, and has a kind of flighty personality. So then this starts to be some connection with the behavior, with the nature of the animals there. So you start to come over from that end of the spectrum toward the other end of the spectrum, which is when you finally get to the other end of the spectrum, away from humans with some fragments of animal characteristics. When you get away from that end of the spectrum and you go to the other, let's call it the right end of the spectrum, going left to right, making a move from full on human-like all the way to the right, which is just the animal, just the animal, you know? So that's like a rabbit. Rabbits don't stand on their hind legs very much. You know, they don't talk. And not getting into mischief necessarily. Some rabbits maybe are. <laughs> you know, they're, they're these cuddly little creatures. And they're uh, sometimes domesticated. And they're sometimes wild. And, you know, they hop around. And uh, they make more rabbits. And they're rabbits. And they're not so different from us. But they don't have those characteristics that we have. Those complex brain, brainy kind of characteristics that make us, you know, to stock markets and the financial district in London and be obsessed with clocks and stuff like that. Rains. Rabbits don't have that. None of them are hooked on the internet, you know? No animal in the world is having uh, phone addiction problems, just for example, right? So that's the far right end of the spectrum, we'll see. Animals are animals. Far left end of the spectrum... They're basically humans. It's Friday. It's too no, Friday. But was, it looks I like it's this, one, this one's a little, the food's a little more cooked, right? Is it? So, why engage in this spectrum? Why engage in anthropomorphizing animals, making them more human-like? And this, by the way, isn't something that just cartoons do, but this is something that we find in myth as well. Coyote, raven, buffalo... In myths, they have human-like characteristics often, and it's said in a lot of the myths of the world that there was a time when humans and animals spoke the same language, and there wasn't a separation. So that's quite something to sit with. And now we're further apart. And now many of us find it hard to speak the language of animals, to hear how they're communicating with how they are, with their actions, with their speech. So we have a gulf. We have a gulf. There's a beautiful Inuit myth that I heard when I traveled to Alaska, that there was a time when the humans and the animals were all together, were as one. There wasn't a separation. And then a great rift opened in the land. And the rift grew and grew, and on one side were all the humans. All the humans on one side of this growing chasm, and on the other side, apart from the humans, were the animals, all the other creatures in the world. And the rift was growing, 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 the animals on one side and the humans on the other. And there was one, one animal who was just near, just near the lip of the chasm. While the other animals were going the other way, this one animal was, look into the humans, look into the humans and, Yelping Not wanting to be parted And that dog jumped across And landed with the humans So this parting Has happened And given that this parting Has happened How can we Communicate with animals How can we understand them How can we bring them Into our space So that we, as humans, can get a sense of their nations and their natures. One way to do this is through art. And this is, of course, really connected with ceremony as well. You know, I'm thinking of mask-making here on the West Coast. The Haida and the Salish people that they, you could say, embody the animals. The frog... The heron and bring them into dance. And so these are ways that we might bring these creatures into our world, into our human world, and make a bridge across that chasm so we can, uh, we can understand one another. And so in art, in storytelling, in myth, this can come through this making more like us, you know, the, the buffalo are dancing and they're dancing in a way that's more similar to how we dance. That they're speaking in a way that's a little closer to how we speak. And this can be a really fun thing as well, I should say. This can be something you can actually play with. If you find a book on animal behaviors, you know, you'll find them uh, sometimes in bookstores, used bookstores in sections about uh, field guides, you know, nature field guides, things like that. So you might find in there, you'll find books to identify different kinds of birds, for example, maybe in the place where you live, uh, different sorts of mammals, different kinds of fish and so on. And in those identification books, you may find some paragraphs describing the animal's behavior, you know. So you might find oh, this bird Junko, uh, doesn't build nests in trees but on the ground and because of that they have to be very clever to get other creatures away from their nests away from their precious eggs oh, you see this kind of squirrel is solitary most of the year just going down and collecting nuts and bringing them up and collecting and bringing and stashing stashing but then a certain time of year they go into heat and they all go into heat and they go and find each other and they reproduce and, you know, start a family and, you know, maybe the old scrolls die at that point or if the young ones are then able to go on their own and maybe go to a somewhat different territory because they have their areas that they use. Each one kind of spreads out. Each species has their web they spread out and have a certain distance from each other often occupying the same kind of niche so the squirrels you know they're not that far from each other compared to some creatures and the little ones may go and then the older ones they go back to being solitary <laughs> the, the male and the female don't necessarily stick together they go back to their own places did the family thing they're back to being in solitude until, until heat comes next year And, you know, other creatures have wider territories. uh, As you go up the food chain and you get into, you know, predators, they tend to have wider territory and fewer of them. You know, so there's not as many eagles in an area as there are, you know, mice. Not as many orcas as there are seals. Not as many seals as there are sea urchins and so on. So you kind of think of this ecology, we could call it, or you know, how creatures behave, the behavior of beings other than ourselves, different kinds of beings. And then if you're thinking about anthropomorphizing that, you might you might take that behavior, that squirrel, for example, and just bring it a little closer to being human without changing anything fundamental. So You know, instead of going uh, and living in a hole in the tree, our, let's call this a lady squirrel, our lady squirrel might uh, live in a bungalow, you know, on top of a hill. Bungalow on top of a hill, a little bit apart from other people. You know, there's some sort of wild land in between the bungalow and where other people live. So not so far apart, but not like in the town either. And what's collecting uh, nuts? I mean, it could literally be connecting, collecting nuts because humans, we eat a lot of the same things squirrels do. This lady could be going around collecting nuts from different nut trees. Why not? Or you could say, well, instead of nuts, it might be information. You know, could be running around and collecting useful bits of information. Uh, information in order to build something, uh, like a root cellar to store nuts in, you know. Information about the history of that village. Depends where you want to take it in the story. Information about the lady's own ancestry. Information about how the village was founded. Mm. Interesting kind of story ideas are there. But basically, this lady is solitary, up in a hut, and going out and collecting things, and then returning back to solitude but <laughs> once a year the time of heat so that could be sexual we could have it that that lady's in she's, oh my god you know like why are all the guys suddenly looking so good looking the, the village the guys are starting to look so good looking i you know i what is it that just happened they i thought they were all a bunch of uh, you know hosers and now they're suddenly looking great so it could be like that and it could be reproduction And, uh, you know, they have a kid together and then the lady goes back and, you know, the dad takes care, that could be. Or that the, you know, they're together while the kid grows up and then she goes back to her bungalow and the dad goes back to his bungalow. Or it could be that it's not sexual and it could be that they get together and they share ideas. So, you know, this lady on the hill... She's investigating the history of the city. And there's, there's another guy or another lady who's on another hill in a bungalow investigating the history of the city. And they're by nature very solitary and don't share their findings with each other. But they're really after the same thing. Collecting information, collecting information. And then at a certain time of year, maybe it's like summer solstice or something with the stars. Then they come out and they share information with each other there might be others as well they come and they share all their findings and they cross-pollinate ideas and then time passes and they start to feel shy again and they go back to their own abodes so this is this is a, a way we could anthropomorphize these squirrels you know bring them into the into the human realm and of course if you're making a story then the people i just described the lady the others in their own bungalows uh, have squirrel heads. They could be, you know, researching the history of the town, uh, but they're behaving like squirrels. They're eating nuts. uh, They're talking. They're writing. They're doing things that, uh, you know, squirrels don't do and humans do. But they're quite a bit like squirrels. And then the town, you know, we talk about anthropomorphizing the characters. Well, the town also could be a really squirrely kind of place. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I don't know, it's a kind of squirrely town. That's a really squirrely town. I don't know about that place. So it could be all made of wood and, you know, maybe the squirrels are good carpenters or they, they gnaw, you know, the rodents that have those teeth in front, they can really gnaw things like opening nuts and stuff. So like beavers, they could be carpenters with their teeth and they make these buildings which are wooden catacombs. You know, the wooden, wooden like those uh, stone formations you see in Utah and other places, these badlands stone formations, they could gnaw through the wood, finding the softest parts and create these buildings that look like they're formed of driftwood or something, you know, like the ocean chewed, <laughs> chewed the shape into the driftwood. That could be the village you know, I was thinking, maybe you were thinking of a kind of traditional European village. That's what came to my mind. You know, depending where you're from, your experience might be traditional African village, Indian village, longhouse. But it could be more squirrely. It could be more squirrely than that. <coughs> An invitation. I really invite you to think of creatures' behavior. You know, and could be your pets. You know, but if you can go a little further out a field, some of the birds in your area. If there's any wildcats, if there's any coyote, if there are badgers or raccoons or others, kind of consider their behavior. Look into their behavior. Maybe write down some key points of the behavior. Check it out in an animal guide. And you might look down, you know, if you write down some points of the behavior, like solitary most of the year, uh, collects nuts, <laughs> goes, goes into heat in August. If you write down some points like that and you look at them for a while, you might think like, can you imagine a human with, some, with that behavior or some equivalent of that behavior? What would that look like? Can you imagine a human like that? And just make those steps and then consider bringing some of the physiology of the animal along. You know, the paws and the head and the eyes and such. Consider bringing that along. You might find that this exercise really increases your relationship with that animal. You know, if you're thinking about how they behave, you're thinking about what, how they eat, what they do when winter comes and summer comes and when the water levels change or, you know, food levels change. If you're really tuned into them, considering what's it like to be them? You know, what's it like to be that bird? You're really tuned in in that way, I think you'll find that your relationship with that being or that species of beings, that your relationship really deepens. And so this anthropomorphization, as we might call it, can be like a bridge. It can be a bridge. Uh, it can be a way of blurring the boundaries between ourselves and other species. Boundaries which, you know, by the way, are always blurred. <laughs> but there's that sense, as experiential sense of them being blurred, uh, can come. And this is something done in myth. And storytelling, and it can be done in kind of a cheap way, but it can be done in a really beautiful, deepening, and dare I say, ceremonial, ritualistic way that is perhaps helpful for us in coming back into right relation with all the other beings with whom we share this wonderful planet. In this wonderful solar system, in this wonderful galaxy, in this wonderful universe. Thanks for listening. A little about season two before we part. This is shaping up to be a really interesting season. Uh, I have a lot to share myself, like today. Thoughts about storytelling, story making, tools for your toolkit. And I'm also planning on interviewing some very interesting people speaking especially about cultural stories, the stories that we are in, stories of ancestry, stories of cultures coming together, how modernity becomes a melting pot for many different cultural ancestral stories, and how we might find those threads again each of us, and see how those threads might weave together rather than melt together. So if that sounds interesting to you, then I look forward to being with you in Season 3. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, May you realize that the shape of your soul is unique that you have a special destiny here and behind the facade of your life there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.